Hi there, and welcome to Calm After the Storm, Survivorship and Other Stories with Amy Syed. This episode is brought to you by the Quantum Genius Program. Today, we're going to talk to someone who has a harrowing story of survivorship and thriving there afterwards. We do want to start by sharing a content warning. Information shared on our podcast can be graphic in nature, and we recommend that you review the details of our podcast before listening. We appreciate you tuning in, and we hope that the story shared with you today is inspirational and helps you get through tough times that you may be facing. Welcome again to Calm After the Storm. This week, I will be speaking to Samra Zephyr. Samra is a public speaker and author of A Good Wife, Escaping the Life I Never Chose. Beginning her life in a very conservative Muslim society when Samra was 16, she became a child bride and was shipped to Canada with the much older man. Through years of abuse, Samra worked to create a better life for herself and eventually landed a spot at the University of Toronto, where she found the strength to break free of her marriage and reclaim her identity. Today, Samra has been named one of Canada's top 100 most powerful women and a top 25 immigrant. Samra, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. I'm so excited for this conversation. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I too am a survivor of domestic and intimate partner violence. And so hearing your story and hearing about how far you've come is super inspiring to me personally, but I'm sure to everybody who hears your story. So to start off, tell me a little bit about your childhood. Where were you born and what did your childhood look like? My childhood was very, very confusing. It was a time of a lot of mixed messages. You know, on one hand, my dad and my mom were always telling me that I uh, education is important and I can do anything I want. And on the other hand, I was constantly hearing messages, even from my own parents, about how I have to prepare for my wedding and my marriage. And my cousins all around me were excited about their uh, wedding gowns and things like that. They were dreaming mm-hmm. about what kind of clothes they'll wear, even, even when we were in middle school. And all our family relatives were constantly talking about my height and how I was so tall that I, they wouldn't be able to find a suitable husband for me. I mean, people would say to my mom in front of me that she should take me to some doctor and get me some kind of medicine to stop me from growing taller because then I wouldn't be ideal marriage material and then people would comment on my skin color and I was I'm a bit relatively fair I guess than than my cousins and stuff so I was always uh, as if I was touted on some kind of a pedestal that I'm the ideal daughter-in-law which is called bahu in Urdu uh, for uh, for I know Urdu uh, too by the way yeah (laughs) well so do I so so you know it is um it was so confusing because I was like, on one hand, you know, I'm having all these big dreams. And on the other hand, being told that those dreams will never come true and they aren't valid because of my gender. And I would also see my dad as an abuser in the home and telling us that girls are not less than boys. And then he was treating our mom as as some kind of second class citizen. And, and it just was very, very confusing time for me uh, growing up. And how many siblings do you have? Sam? I have three younger sisters. So I'm the eldest of four girls. And that too, you know, I think being the eldest and then having three younger sisters, everybody was like, oh, we should, as if my parents had some burden of four girls and they had to get started on their marriages ASAP. And the start meant 
from me uh, because I was the eldest. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting you're saying that because I'm the eldest of three girls. And um, although I'm born so you know and what raised I'm here, about. yeah, I do because we used to, like if we went into community events, especially, there were comments always like, oh my God, how do you do it with all these women in the house? And my dad, I was lucky and fortunate that he was a feminist and he would always have a rebuttal to them. But I found it to be so interesting that that was yeah. a point of contention and conversation. But I think culturally, it's just accepted, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And culturally, it's it's not just accepted. It's also like almost as if girls are burden or chore on the on the family. And my parents who had four girls and no boys were frowned upon. And, and even my granddad treated us with so much disdain. And even with my father, he was just, you know, his other son who had a son uh, was far more precious in my granddad's eyes than my dad because he had daughters. And I was the eldest grandchild as well from my dad's side. So on one hand, I was being showered with love and affection. And on the other hand, I was being told that uh, my, my own individuality and my dreams and goals aren't valid because of my gender. It was a very confusing time. And, um, and I think a lot of it now when I look back, I think that's what I'm trying to do these years uh, of my life is to unpack how all those messages have manifested themselves into my adult life and then to unlearn all those things because they, they really wire your brain, you know? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's like you're the formation of your life, right? Your, your first five years of life, you're being told these confusing messages and then you go into adulthood and you know consciously that it's not true. But then and it's still there, right? In it's the back still there. of your mind. Yeah. It's still there. Yeah. You're kind of like dealing with all these processes. Oh, no, no, no. I got to stop thinking this way. And then that's the way that I got to think. So it's kind of like these extra layers of processing that you do. And it's exhausting sometimes. Oh, for sure. A hundred percent. It resonates with me. I mean, even just growing up here, a totally different experience. But when I was exposed to cultural um, effects of, you know, what people were practicing here, you see it. And mm -hmm. so I find it to be really interesting. Now, from your personal experience, and just for listeners who are not familiar with Pakistani culture, what do you think in, in terms of growing up? Was it an influence of religion? Is it an inherent culture? Is it just generations of understanding? Where do you think this mentality was coming from? Honestly, I think it's a little bit of everything. I think it's generations of accepted norms. First of all, it's a cycle. That's what we grew up with. That's what we know best. That's what the right thing is. People don't practice critical thinking. They don't think that, oh, what, what we've been taught and indoctrinated with for a long time could be wrong. So they just pass on those values. In fact, I feel like people hang on to these values even more in the face of changing times because they think they have to maintain some kind of like legacy or something. Uh, so they become even more vigilant and more strict. And that's what I've seen with parents here in Canada a lot. They think they have to hang on to those values that they grew up with in Pakistan because and they have to be even more strict with their kids here because their kids are now, it's not like, you know, in Pakistan, like um, everybody's the same or everybody thinks the same way. Here, they're being challenged by progressive Western thinking. Yes, And yes. so the, the parents think they have to be even more vigilant and more strict because they're competing with that. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of children, a lot of youth, and I do a lot of speaking in front of youth groups who are struggling with um, how do I even tell my parents that I don't believe in all this? How do I tell my parents that I'm gay? How do I tell my parents that I'm, uh, you know, I'm in love or I have a girlfriend and I don't want to get married to somebody from a village in Pakistan? And how do I tell my parents that I, uh, you know, and how, I don't want to wear the hijab and then they would come to school wearing the hijab and then stuff the hijab in the locker and, and then, then take it off. Yeah, I saw that too. Yeah. Mm hmm. 
And then also like, um, you know, a lot of girls being taken back home and being married off and that's happening quite a lot. And I can, you know, that's a whole different topic. But well, actually, I want to talk about that topic with you because you you went through that, right? You Mm -hmm. went through being married to somebody that you didn't know at a young age. Can you talk me through what happened with that situation? Yeah, I was in grade 11. Uh, I was I was 16 years old when my mom came into my room one day and uh, I was doing my math homework. She put down a glass of juice, stroked my hair, and then um, and that informed me that I would be getting married in a few months. I was flabbergasted. I thought she was joking at first. And then uh, and then she said, no, the the boy lives in Canada and he's really uh, his family seems very progressive and his sister is my friend. And if you say no to this, then you're basically saying no to God's will and you'll be punished. So religion was also used as a big way to justify uh, this this decision that was made for me. It was never my choice. And a few months later, just after my 17th birthday, I was sitting in a grand banquet hall decked up in red and gold beside this man who was 11 years older. I'd never met him before and he was now my new husband. That was really devastating. I mean, one day I'm, I'm in school playing cricket and the next day I'm a married woman uh, to a man that I have never met or ne- never talked to. And then a few months after that, I'm arriving in a very new country um, as his as his wife. It felt very alienating and very, very scary. I was very lost. Yeah, no, for sure. And so when you guys arrived in Canada, what did life look like for you? I'm a, I'm an eternal optimist. So I always try to see the silver lining and everything. And I think even then I was like, you know, maybe, maybe this is, this is okay. This isn't so bad. I, I can go to school because I was very ambitious growing up. My cousins and my friends and everybody would be dreaming of their wedding days and I would be dreaming of going to Harvard or Stanford. Oh, like, that's I, amazing. I, I, yeah. I was, I was just a total, total nerd and, and, uh, passionate about my education, wanting to change the world and mm-hmm. and all of that. So the whole idea, this marriage thing was pitched to me as a way to be able to go and get a, a an, an international or a, internationally recognized education. Mm-hmm. Uh, so because his family promised my parents that they would send me to school in Canada. So I okay. was kind of thinking of it in my naive 16 year old head as a ticket to education, that this is the only way I'll be able to go to university because my otherwise my parents wouldn't be able to send me. They can't afford to send me to university. And also um, it's not culturally acceptable because I was told that it's not like we could send you somewhere abroad on your own. Like what will people say? And no girl has ever done that in our family. Just for like for listeners to understand also um, from your perspective, if you were to go to university back home, they didn't really have like loan programs or a way for you to access the resources, right, to go to school? So if I were to go to university back home, then they did have, um, my parents didn't have the resources as in as in like they, they never saved up, but I would have been able to go. But my dreams were bigger than that. My dreams mm. were like to get an international education and go I to see. a top university and all of that. So the way this was sold to me was like, it's not like we can send you away somewhere to a top university abroad because yeah. no girl has ever done that in our family. And yeah. uh, it will be inappropriate who will take care of you, blah, blah, blah. 
But this is a way that you can go to school and we won't be worried about you that you're on your own because you'll be with your husband. So I came to Canada definitely feeling very lost and scared and whatnot, but also with a little bit of hope that I'll be able to go to school and get an education and and fulfill all my dreams. And, and at that time, my husband seemed to be a very nice person who was uh, who was supportive of my education. So I thought maybe that it's not going to be so bad. Um, maybe this is the right thing or, you know, like my mom said, God's will. So I came here with with that hope. But soon enough, I realized that all of that was just a a smokescreen, a lot of false promises. Within weeks, I was pregnant. And then I was put, I was told that I can't go to school. And my mother-in-law, in in fact, and my my parents-in-law were living with us. So we were all living in the same house. And I was told that now that I'm a mother and a daughter-in-law and a wife, I should forget about school and fulfill on my real purpose of being a woman. In fact, my mother-in-law once said to me that you should be grateful that we got you to the real purpose of being a woman sooner rather than later and you didn't have to go through all that useless education crap. That was my reality and the next few years after that were the most horrible years of my life. I, I was living in a very, very dark place. Every day I would get up and just wish that it would be a dull day I wouldn't get yelled at or I wouldn't get hit or I wouldn't get insulted. I was walking on eggshells and living in fear every single moment because I thought I would do something that would upset him or make him angry and then he would take out his anger on me or my parents-in-law would become angry and they would give me the silent treatment or Mm -hmm. the passive-aggressive behavior. And and no matter what I did, I was just never good enough. And uh, it took a huge toll on my self-esteem and everything that made me who I am. I often describe that feeling of those first five, six years of living in a dark box, like a dark place with no light and with just enough air that uh, I could just breathe and survive, but not enough to be able to breathe and thrive. It's like it's like living in a constant state of suffocation and Mm -hmm. uh, and walking on eggshells in fear, like just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Uh, It's a very debilitating way of existence. It's not even living. I just call that existing. And there were some dark moments um, in my life at that point where I didn't even want to live, didn't want to go on, tried to end my life. Luckily, my daughters woke up and started crying, which which saved me in that moment. Can you walk me through that moment? Like, so you're going through abuse, uh, intense abuse, it sounds like, and the cycle of, you know, violence, and you're living in the state. And how many years has it been now that that you hit that moment? It had been two years. There was there was a particular thing that happened. Uh, I remember that so vividly as if it just happened. I was sitting at the dinner table with him and uh, gave him, warmed up his food and got him water and stuff. And he started yelling at me for something. And, and he would just pick up random things to yell at me because he was angry at something else. He was miserable inside. Now I understand that, but at that yeah. time I didn't. I thought it was all my fault. And he was yelling at me about something money related. And um, even though I never had any money on me, I just lost my appetite. So I got up and I started to leave and, or go to the kitchen. And he's like, what are you doing? And he called me a very bad word, the B word. And then I said, um, I don't, I, I'm not hungry anymore. And he grabbed my wrist and he twisted it. And then he picked up his glass of ice water and just threw it in my face. And I got drenched. And the tile floor got very slippery and I slipped and uh, hurt my back. My daughter, who was, you know, a year and a half or so at that point, was in her high chair and she just started screaming. And I 
quickly got up and I went to the bathroom. While I was running to the bathroom, I grabbed the home phone, the cordless phone in my hand, um, and I locked the bathroom. And I remember dialing 911 and my finger hovering on the dial button and I couldn't push it because my thought process was, where will I go? I don't have family in Canada. I don't have any money. I don't have a job. I don't even have citizenship. What if my daughter is taken away from me? He sponsored me here because they, him and his family had told me if I said anything, I'd be deported because he sponsored me and I would lose my child, which is a lie. I know that, but at that time I didn't know that. So um, all those thoughts, all those fears, and I, I just uh, got out of the bathroom and uh, went into my room and cried myself to sleep. And it was it was that next day when I just thought, is this what my life is going to look like forever? Then I really don't want to live. And I put my daughter to sleep and got up and went into the bathroom. And and my daughter, uh, you know, she's she was a very, very sound sleeper uh, as a baby. Um, once you put her to sleep, she wouldn't wake up for several hours. So I put her to sleep, I kissed her goodbye, went into the bathroom and I picked up um, a blade, like a razor blade, and I had it uh, at my neck. And I was just about to press and in that very moment, my daughter just started to cry. And something snapped in me and I dropped that laser, razor blade on the floor and I went out and I just hugged her and I cried so much and I just said thank you to her. And I promised to her that I won't leave her because I don't want the same thing that happened to me to happen to her because I was the only one who could save her. It was one of the, I think, probably the darkest moment of my life. Speaking to Samra has been a jarring experience for me. She speaks about topics that are very close to my heart and soul. With a similar background to Samra, I can identify both ethnically and religiously to a lot of what she says, and it resonates with me. It is basically what could have been for me if I was a few people removed from her situation. I also see my privilege in a different light concerning the freedom I had to be who I wanted to be growing up in stark contrast to the life Samra has lived. So after that, how did you start to pull yourself out of this? Because it's very hard, right? A lot of people are not able to. It was very hard. Uh, a lot of a lot of steps forward, a lot of steps back. They were small steps, I would say. It, it all, everything, every big thing is a culmination of a lot of tiny little things, right? Yeah, yeah. I think after that, the first thing I knew that I had to do was get an education, no matter how. I hadn't even finished high school when I came to Canada, when I got married. I was, I, at that time in Ontario, we needed grade 13. Yeah. I just had grade 12. So then I, I couldn't go to a regular high school because that was not allowed. It wasn't appropriate uh, for a married woman. So I ordered all my courses through Independent Learning Center. Uh, I was given permission to do those courses because I wasn't going out of the home and they thought, you know, at least this way I'll be silenced. So I would do all my chores during the day. And then at night I would uh, go into my room and my husband and I were sleeping in separate bedrooms 
from the from the day she was born because he okay. didn't want to be disturbed by the baby at night and which was good for me because I didn't like sleeping with him so I I yeah. just had my own room I would go into my room and I would study and and there were t- so many d- times when she would be sitting in my lap and I would be breastfeeding her and I would be studying or I would be oh, like wow Samra that's amazing would be you know like just talking to her and like you know playing with her while also doing my calculus questions <laughs> and uh, and that's how I finished my high school like the pat next it took me next 4 or 5 years to finish my 6 OACs the grade 13 credits and uh and then I applied to university and I got in but he wouldn't pay my fee and he said there was no useless money to waste on my silly little hobbies and I couldn't get OSAP which is government funding cuz his income was too high and they look at household income so I couldn't get enough OSAP so do about that time I also got my citizenship so I was able to go and go back to my parents and I decided not to come back. And then he just, you know, promised me and said all the right things and promised my parents that he's reformed. And my parents were like, well, now is that, you know, he's got a kick in the ass and maybe he'll just change. And he promised to move out of his parents' house and he was saying all the right things. And my parents sent me back to him. Um, my father also died shortly after. So it was a very... It was a very weird situation. Like I, I kind of feel like that was also a bit of a turning point because I think at that point I realized that I can't depend on anybody. I have to pull myself out of it myself. And if I want to go to university, I have to start making money. I have to pay for it myself because I can't get funding and I he won't pay for me. So going out of the house and getting a job is a no-no. It's it's uh, it's not allowed. So um, so then I started to look at uh, ways to make money at home. So I started to think of like research online ways, making money and stuffing envelopes and all those scams that go around. And and then one day I was actually in um, in a local no frills with my mother-in-law. You know those ads on the community board, like someone selling their couch and yeah. TV and whatnot. So yeah. I saw this ad for babysitting services, and that was like, really, people can make money by taking care of other people's kids. And Kijiji was kind of just starting out, so I started placing ads on Kijiji that I'm offering tutoring and babysitting, and I started to build a bit of a clientele. Luckily, I was fluent in English, so I was able to talk and get clients. And within a few months, I had established a home daycare and I was earning several thousand dollars a month. Uh, most of my money was be- was being taken away from me and uh, put towards the household expenses. But uh, I would still stash away a few hundred bucks here and there on the side every single month, saving my little nest egg for my first year tuition fee. And it took me another three or four years to save the, what, I think, 2500 or $3,000 that I needed yeah. uh, to start university. And then um, and then I started. So the whole process, this whole journey was almost 10 years. I was 26. Wow, Sarah, that's amazing. And just imagine like day after day, what kept you going? I think just the drive that I have one life. And even if there's a minuscule chance that I can change it, I'm going to keep trying. And more than that, the determination to break the cycle for my daughters uh, and this passion for education. I think that's one thing I was never willing to give up on was my education. When I started university, I was 26. I had been married for 10 years. I had two children. I was given permission to take just one course. And I used my earning as a leverage. I said to them that if you don't allow me to go to university, I'm going to shut down the daycare. And they were already used to the money coming in. 
So I was given to take given permission to take one course at night and very strict instructions. Don't talk to anyone. Don't make any friends. Don't raise your hand in class. In other words, be invisible. So I would be completely try to be invisible in the beginning. I thought he had spies on campus who are watching me and will report yeah, back to him. Yeah, I was going to gonna say, so yeah, well, what were you thinking? Yeah, he's watching you all the time? Oh, all the time. Because, okay. you, you know, there was a very brief period of time earlier in the marriage when he allowed me or told me to get a job because he was out of work and I got a minimum wage job at Zellers. Uh, and he would be in the store, not in front of me, like hiding here and there, just watching me. Because he would then later on tell me that you were talking to that person and you were smiling. Why were you flirting with them? You know, why were you being so this? Why? Yeah. So, like, so even when I started university, I thought that's what's happening. But then slowly my walls started crumbling and I would start to say something in class and I started scoring straight A's on my exams and yeah. and my profs would rave about me or announce my name in class and and then people would want to study with me and it was like the first time in my life I was being treated with kindness and respect and dignity for the very things I was ridiculed for all my life my ambitions my goals and my motivation and my individuality and my intelligence and uh, and I was like everybody thinks I'm a rock star and then I go home and everyone like I'm being treated like I'm the scum at the bottom of a shoe like I don't understand uh and then one day in my dilemma I was actually walking on campus and I stumbled upon this sign outside the health and counseling center which had a bunch of questions on it um do you feel intimidated do you feel like you've lost your voice like you can't go on like you're living in fear and I was like answering yes to all of those questions and then it said, come in and make an appointment. We're here to talk. It was as if, you know, the, the universe had put that sign there for me. It was the right time for you it, to see that sign. It really was. And I went in, made an appointment. And a few days later, I was sitting across from my counselor and the floodgates opened. And I was just like, please tell me what's wrong with me. What is that secret to being a good wife that keeps eluding me? Why can't I just figure it out? Like, what can I do? Maybe if I cook food, better food or keep the baby quieter at night or not talk too much or not have opinions or maybe I should give up my school. Like, what do I do? And if this is normal, because everybody tells me it's normal. My own mom tells me it's normal. How does it, like, why doesn't it feel normal? It doesn't feel right. And that's the first time anyone said to me, it's not your fault and uh, you're being abused. And that's the first time I heard the word abuse. And it took me another two years of going to regular counseling, learning about my rights as a woman, as a Canadian, as a human being, learning my, about my options, about the cycle of abuse and and then also getting gaining confidence and courage. And, and so finally, when I was in my second year of undergrad, yeah. I was 28, I, um, I finally left. And tell me a little bit about that, Samra. Like, how did leaving look to you at that point? Like that day when you decided to leave, what happened? I had already started to fight back by that time. We had moved out of his parents' house. We had a place of our own now. And uh, I'd started to push back on things and call out his behavior and and uh, tell him that he's being abusive or, or, you know, like, you're not allowed to talk to me that way and stuff, and which increased the violence because abuse is about power and control. When, and when an abuser feels that he's losing control, he's going to exert more power and more abuse to feel like he's in power. So, so he basically started to hit me more. And there was one time, this one day, I was studying. 
And he would always get very jealous of me spending a lot of time at school. I think he'd kind of been catching on that I'm preparing to leave. And that's why I'm focusing so much on my education. But he just picked up my laptop and threw it to the ground. And I was working on some assignments and he threw the papers around and they all got mixed up. And then he went into the basement. So I then went after him. Uh, I was just furious. And I started saying, like, what is wrong with you? Like, you know, I can't do this anymore. I'm done with you. And I'm just going to leave you. And I'm going to get a divorce or something like that. So I started to walk up the basement stairs afterwards. And he grabbed me and he pushed me to the to the chair. He had his hands around my throat. And his thumbs were right on my windpipe. And he started to press. And he was shaking me. And I was in panic. I thought he was going to kill me. Like in a split second, I just, I need him. And then kicked him and then he fell back and I just got up. Then he grabbed me again and I started screaming at the at the top of my lungs because we lived in a semi-detached. So I, I was hoping that the people next door to us whose wall was attached to us could hear us and call 911 or something. Um, and I somehow managed to like get away from him like by slapping and kicking and pushing him. And then quickly we ran up. Samra, where were your kids during this? They were at school. This was oh, in okay. daytime. So I grabbed my car keys, went to the garage and squealed out of the driveway and just drove around the neighborhood like a maniac, hoping he's not following me. And then just parked to parked in one of the random streets on the curb and just bawled my eyes out, called Assaulted Women's Helpline and told them that I've made the decision to leave and I need resources. So then I went back. I just was very calm. And that night I was standing in front of a mirror. There was a bruise on my face because he had slapped me that day. And I just told myself that I'm not going to cover this up anymore. I'm going to leave. If not for me, then for my daughters. And leaving was messy because, you know, I didn't have any big plan. My plan was I'll get an education, get a job and then leave. But it hardly ever looks like that. A lot of things happened. He sold the house from under me. I was almost homeless. I had no money. I have no family in Canada, no friends. Uh, luckily, I was a student at the University of Toronto and I got a place there on campus uh, where I lived for the next four years while working four or five on-campus jobs, minimum wage jobs, including selling butter chicken and biryani to students on campus because <laughs> yeah. they're always starving for home-cooked food. Of course, um, of course. And that's how I made some friends too. And uh, and then uh, just kept going one day at a time. Like it was a lot of dark moments, but it was also like just one more step, one more day. When I graduated, I was named the top student in the university. I won several awards and scholarships and whatnot. And, you know, all those all those awards and stuff. Yes, the recognition was great and the money was very helpful. But the biggest thing I got out of all of that was validation that I was not crazy. I was not wrong. I was always right. Even if the whole world is against you. For me, it was like that. My own family was against me. And then after I left, by far the hardest thing the most crippling thing I faced was the cultural backlash and the humiliation, like the, the shame and stigma that was inflicted upon me as if I'd done something so sinful and wrong by leaving abuse behind and by leaving my marriage. I'd failed at the real purpose of being a woman. My own brother-in-law once called me and said, what's the point of you winning all these awards and scholarships if you failed at the real purpose of being a woman? Shame on you. 
my mom didn't want to tell my relatives that I'd been divorced because it would be something so shameful. There was just so much of that. I was sexually harassed by married Pakistani and Indian men in Canada. Like I would get random calls on my cell phone that, oh, we heard you're living alone and you're divorced. Uh, maybe you need some company. Just random people who I didn't even know. And now that I was a divorcee, it, it seemed like I had a label on my head that said, you know, I'm fair game and I'm available. And I was being sexually harassed by these people and, and told that it, I should be grateful that they're giving me attention because who else would want me now? Because I'm damaged goods and used property. There was a friend of mine whose parents were super nice to me. So I used to go there to their house and I was always craving for that affection. And, you know, in those days, her mom one day said to me that she found a marriage proposal for me of a 60 year old man with grown kids who were older than me. And I said to her, auntie, I'm only 29. And she said, so what do you think? You're going to find someone your age now. Like, don't forget you have two kids and you're divorced. Like men can even find 18 year old virgins. Like be grateful that even he's accepting you. Oh my gosh, Samra, this is crazy. Oh my goodness. That's awful. You know, it was so bad for the first five or six months after I got separated. All this was so bad. There was a weak moment that I had when I actually thought of going back. In fact, I went to meet him and I said, you know, I want to come back to you. And he said, I'll think about it. And thank God for that, that he didn't, you know, he was just looking for another time to humiliate me. But that moment, I think, was that rock bottom that I needed to hit in order to go back up. Because I felt so humiliated after that moment that I gave him another chance after working so hard for six months to move forward after being in university, living by myself, I gave him another chance to take another dig at me and humiliate me once more. And I and I'm not going to do that anymore. And then I just just completely cut myself away from all of those people, cut myself away from the Pakistani community, just threw myself into my studies and led to those awards and scholarships and graduating and then doing my master's degree. But yes, you're right. It was the validation that all of those people all my life were wrong. So I tell people that even if the whole world seems to be against you, follow your inner voice because that will never be wrong. So Samra, tell me about your inner voice, because your inner voice is like invincible, right? Like your inner voice is something that we all have this inner voice, but we don't all listen to our inner voice, right? We drown it out by staying busy or by mm -hmm. making excuses for ourselves, or like you did, throw yourself into your family and your community and somehow believe, you know, what these people are telling you that's drowning your inner voice to be right. So how do you capture that inner voice and really listen to it? I've been doing so much of this conscious inner voice work. So this is a very serendipitous conversation right now. I think now that I look back, I've always wanted to listen to it and act on it. Uh, it hasn't come naturally to me yet. For example, in, in my marriage, there was a long time I tried to make it work because I thought my inner voice was wrong and everybody else was right. Even growing up, I, I because I was told that what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling is wrong because everybody around me is telling me, no, it's not valid for a girl to think this way and whatnot. So that inner voice was drowned for a long time. But I'm going to tell you a quick story. So this was about a few months ago. I was, uh, and you know, this pandemic has given us a lot of time to think and reflect and go inwards. And I've been facing, you know, the same kind of dilemma in my career the past couple of years. Like, where do I go from here? Like, on one hand, I've got this 
banking career that pays the bills. And on the other hand, I've got this passion mission and, but it's ambiguous. There's no straight path. This work that I'm doing there, you know, yes, I'm great at it. I love doing it. It's my passion. It's my mission. I'm getting great feedback, but where does this go? Like, what does this look like? So there was a lot of, and, and I'm a single mom and I need the, to pay the bill. So there was a lot of different questions that I had in like, what is that career for me now? Like, you know, uh, what, what does my life look like with all of this? How can I build a career that aligns with everything that I do? This was in August. Um, I was in Gatineau to visit a friend for two days and I just packed like a overnight bag. And, and then I was like, you know what? I don't want to go back home. I called my car company, I, I car rental and I extended the rental for a month yeah. and I took off without any itinerary, without any plan. I yeah. took off on a solo road trip all over Quebec, Maritime and North Shore. Oh, wow. And it's so beautiful there, isn't it? It's gorgeous. So I went <laughs> yeah. all the way up to Gaspé and then did a whole loop and then take the ferry to Quote Nord and went all the way up to Settil and and the, um, and Mingan and all the First Nations communities and whatnot. So what happened was on that trip, there were the only commitment I made to myself was I'm not going to question and logically talk myself out of things that I feel like doing. So if I'm driving and I feel like going down a random detour, I will do it. And so I didn't even have hotels booked or anything. I literally had two pillows in the back of my car and a blanket. Uh, and if I find a hotel, great. If not, I'll sleep in my car. So um, because I followed instinct, like consciously followed that inner voice and that guidance, that intuition, I would uh, go take a detour and I would find this glorious sunset spot. Like there was this one woman I met, she suggested this um, island uh, tour um, where you actually can only go there by boat. And it's the most untouched place I've ever seen. You leave nothing but footprints and you take nothing but memories and pictures. The purity of that place reflected the purity of my own soul to me. And I got so many answers and I made so many major decisions uh, about my career and everything. And I felt sure about them. It reflected back to me the same time when I left my marriage. There was no certainty. There was just hope and a determination and a trust in my ability that I'll figure it out. And so I came back from that trip. I made some major decisions. I'm now lo no longer employed at the bank. Oh, wow. Uh, I took Congratulations. A Thank That's you. huge. Wow. I took a package. Uh, I'm out and I've applied to some programs uh, to go back to school, which I've uh, been wanting to do for a while. And, uh, and, you know, I talked to my daughters, I sat them down and I said, you know, this, I won't have a, I have a corporate job and all of those things. So for now we're fine, but there will be times when we might need to work things around. They're like, mom, we made it work when we were broke and we were almost homeless. Like we're in a very good place. We're going to be fine. And, and you, you know, we're not babies anymore. We're real partners now. Oh, that's amazing. How beautiful. My younger daughter said to me, you know what, mom, and the first time you went to university, you were taking care of us. This time we'll take care of you. Oh, so sweet. And I just like almost cried. I'm going to cry now too. But, <laughs> uh, you know, it just, I was like, yeah, we'll make it work. And I've never been happier. I feel like a huge weight has been lifted off my shoulders. And the only voice I needed to listen to was my own. And the only person I needed permission from to do the things that I wanted to do was me. The biggest epiphany that came to me on that trip was, especially after I left my marriage, I felt like I wanted to always be in control. Because if I lose control, I'm going to go back to that situation again. And I never wanted to go back there. Yeah. So... But now I, but what I realized on that trip that 
I thought because I thought control was power, but I realized on that trip that my power was not about being in control. My power actually was being true to myself. And then everything amazing that happened to me because I was true to myself was it happened to me because I was not in control. My book deal that came to me or my now the book being adapted to a TV series and, and I'm now embarking on my second book. And so all of those things that are happening are happening for me. I'm not controlling those things, but all I can control is that if I'm true to myself or not. So Samar talks a lot about surrounding yourself with positive influences. I agree with Samra because if you surround yourself with positive influences, it takes away from the negativity we have within us. When you're feeling down already, the last thing you need is negative talk externally that reaffirms your internal negative talk. Our minds are built in a manner to focus on the negative. This is inherent from our survival mechanisms found in our DNA epigenetically. We turn to negativity to keep us safe often, um, and in the past, we would use this in our fight or flight mechanism. So our brains are automatically wired to think negatively, and talking to those that are negative outside of us reaffirm it. Being around positive people and positive influences challenges that negativity within us and gives us a feeling of belief in ourselves. And I want to talk to you a little bit about how you're thriving today. So you've written this amazing book that I'm definitely going to read, but I've heard such beautiful things about it. It just, it rings true to so many people. And I hear that it is life-changing to read your book, especially for people from this part of the world, from Southeast Asia, because we we all have certain cultural aspects that we deal with in our day-to-day life. And so to hear a voice that's so loud and strong about your, your journey is just beautiful. But talk to me a little bit about your global speaking opportunities and how you get up in front of these groups and how you share with people what your journey looks like and how people can start to pivot their own mindset to be more inclusive of people around them. Thank you for asking me that. First of all, I think I feel like every day I'm just getting started. So it's really great to sometimes talk about it and like formulate it in my own head. But, you know, it all the speaking especially started from me going to small community events and begging literally people to give me the mic for maybe 10 minutes because there might be someone in the audience who needs to hear what I have to say. And it it just started from a place of passion. In fact, the first the first time I ever got paid was after four years of doing it for free and just on my own time, on my own cost. And I got paid a $50 honorarium and I felt so guilty that why am I getting paid for work for helping people? <laughs> uh, so it, it was, uh, you know, uh, and then and then from there, it just kind of kept growing. And today, you know, I, I have a global speaking career and, and then I'm writing my second book, uh, which is actually a, a deeper dive into unlearning a lot of these, you know, what we were talking about just a little while ago, a lot of these cultural and societal messages and norms that we grow up with that hinder our growth. There's this old saying, treat people as you'd like to be treated. I say, no, treat people as they'd like to be treated because everyone's experience is different. And exactly. I I couldn't agree more. It's our fundamental birthright to be accepted and respected and loved for who we are as an individual, not what we're supposed to be, not the box we're supposed to fit into, not the gender role or other role that we're supposed to fulfill. 
for who we are as an individual. We are all unique and uh, we all deserve to live in a place and live in a world that helps us or empowers us to be ourselves and we feel psychologically safe, especially in our homes and in our families. And um, that's the motto that we, with which I raise my girls. And it's been a challenge. I mean, my girls are growing up in a very different way than I grew up in. Uh, and it took me a while to come to this place. But there were times in the beginning when a lot of some of my own biases or things came came into the way of my parenting, such as um, when my daughter started dating, I had a huge like time like difficult time with that because I I was like oh my god she's dating she's gonna have sex like what's gonna happen like what you know and and I grew up in a place where that's absolutely no no and you don't date and you don't you don't touch boys and um otherwise you'll be impure so you have to be pure at the time of marriage and I had a lot of a really hard time with that and my younger daughter is right now you know kind of figuring out her sexual orientation so that but but I think going all through all of this has has really made me realize that, you know, my job is not to train them to be a certain way or tell them to fit into any kind of boxes. It's to be, it's to create that psychologically safe space for them so they can really be themselves and express themselves and, and, uh, and feel safe doing that and know that I've got their back. My favorite moment um, of all, like I've had so many wonderful moments, but some of my favorites have been a father writing to me from Pakistan and saying that he read my article and he canceled his daughter's wedding and sent her to school. Oh, or, I love that yeah oh my gosh I'm getting goosebumps That's and his beautiful. teenage daughter's wedding um or uh just a few months ago uh three young girls 12 or 13 year old girls from a village in India in Kashmir India uh read my book in their tiny school library and they they wrote a handwritten letter to me and the teacher scanned that letter and emailed it to me and the letter was like uh you know after reading your book we have decided we will not let anything stand in our way and we found our path and we know we're on the right path. You know, I was like, that's why I do what I do. And it just gives me so much fulfillment, so much joy, so much healing. Uh, you know, some people say that I do so much for others. I think it, do- it does so much more for me because to be able to take something negative that happened and turn it into a positive force to help people, I feel privileged and honored to be able to do this work. In every episode, we also ask uh, our guests to dedicate the episode to somebody who is going through a rough time or has not survived. Is there somebody that you have in mind that you'd like to dedicate this episode to? I think I'll dedicate this episode to my sister. One of my younger sisters, the one right, uh, right after me, is in an abusive marriage. She's not allowed to meet any of us. She's not allowed to go out, like have have, have her agency independence or nothing. I saw her two years ago and and uh, just wanted to just wanted to hug her and tell her I'm there for her, and I did. But I, I know leaving is a process, and I know that in her own time, hopefully she will she will realize that she deserves better, and I will, I will be there for her. But it's hard to see that right now, you know, living afar. And, and sometimes I feel like I'm helping all these women all over the world and I, and I can't do anything for my own sister. And then I remind myself that, you know, it's her own process. And when she comes there, I will be there for her, but I can't force it upon her. So I know she won't listen to this, but maybe she can feel it that I'm sending her all the love and positive energy and encouragement and courage uh, her way and uh, telling her that the world is a beautiful place and there is a wonderful, wonderful life after trauma. Uh, all she needs to do is take that first step and then there will be a lot of people who will hold her hand. 
Well, we're going to put the intention out there that she does find this episode and she does listen to it. So I really thank you so much, Samra, for being here today and for sharing this with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Best start the week. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. To all my listeners, if you are dealing with a situation like Samra's, you are not alone. There are millions of people like you in the world. Try to find space to craft a plan and make sure when you are ready to leave, you leave on your terms and in a safe manner. Resources are available both on Samra's site and my own website for help. Thank you for listening to Calm After the Storm. The podcast is dedicated to telling stories about survivorship, healing, and thriving after trauma. Tune in next week to hear another incredible conversation. If you like this episode, support Calm After the Storm, Survivorship and Other Stories by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Calm After the Storm is created by me, Amy Syed, and produced by Quill Incorporated. Special thanks to our guest today, Samra Zephyr. Be sure to check out her initiatives at www.samrazephyr.com and resources at my website, www.amysayed.com.